Meet today's momentum sister. She's a trailblazer, a pioneer, a Jewish mom, and she's making a difference for herself, her family, her community, and the world. Want to know how she does it? This is the Pashmina Podcast, and here is our host, Adrienne Gold Davis, with part two of her interview with Kim Smiley. Why would it matter if someone else took your idea? Oh, took my idea. Yeah, that mattered very much, actually. And, I, and I'm not a person that um, covets my ideas. I'm a person that loves to share ideas. But this idea was, I don't know if you've ever had this, Adrian. I'm sure you have. But something that you're so passionate about and that's so interwoven into the fabric of your soul that if you don't do it, you think that you won't be fulfilling your soul's purpose. Mm-hmm. So I felt like this idea kind of clung to me, and it was almost on my back, and it was sort of clawing at me for five years until I had the bandwidth to do it. Because at the time, I was working a full-time job, and I had my side hustle, as you called it, which was my jewelry (laughs) company. And I did that for two years before I quit my job. And so I didn't have the bandwidth to do the empathy effect as well. But when I resigned from my job at UJA to do my jewelry business full-time, within a month, I had launched The Empathy Effect. And it's it's so interesting because when you think of an idea, and we all have ideas, everyone has ideas. I have a ton of ideas, and most of them I don't do. But this idea was different. This idea was, it was a part of my life's purpose, and I knew that. And so the idea of someone else taking it was anathema to me. Oh, I hear that. My curiosity is that you're not territorial enough to not share your ideas and you're sensitive enough to not want or to trust that people won't take them and run with them in their own direction. This is a dialectic. This is in some ways going to be for you a constant push-pull, the part of you that wants to share and, 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 and fill the world with great ideas and the part of you that wants to sustain something for yourself. There's got to be some tension there for you. Yeah, there's huge tension for me, but with generally, but with the empathy effect, there was no tension for me. I was so single-minded and laser-focused that I was going to do it. It was just a matter of when. And it's kind of a lesson for us all because our lives are often very, very full. So it's kind of a lesson that ideas take time sometimes, and we have to be patient, and we have to marinate in the discomfort of not doing them sometimes until the time is right. Uh, Bashatova, right? Bashatova. Do you think that that is perhaps metaphorically exactly what it meant to struggle to sustain a pregnancy and to finally have a child? That the percolation and the marination and all of those struggles, all of that pain and suffering, and I'm sure that repeated lost pregnancies were painful. Do you feel that you learned or gained something that by the time you had your first child, you feel that you were ready, that you were cooked? It's such an interesting observation. I I think that I cultivated a lot of resilience through the journey of trying to have a child. And I literally was writing the empathy effect from fertility clinics at 6.30 in the morning. And a lot of women listening can relate to that and can empathize with that. And when I said before that empathy saved my life, I wasn't being figurative or poetic. I was being literal. Because 
what happens sometimes is that sometimes is that when we're in extreme pain or turmoil or existential angst, it's hard not to become almost overtaken by our own suffering. And there is so much suffering in the world, right? I, I just wrote a post about this this morning on Instagram, how there is such a profound amount of suffering in the world. And sometimes when we're so immersed in our own suffering, it's hard to see the miracles. But I think the reason the Empathy Effect saved my life is because I was committed every day to looking for a miracle. Hmm. And it changed the way that I was seeing and did not allow me to marinate in my own suffering because I had to turn outward to look wow. for the miracles around me. Wow. So this is truly a paradigm shift. This is truly a way of reframing and looking for the good, an active, aggressive act of turning your sights off yourself and onto the beauty that was around you, as opposed to focusing on the pain and suffering you focused on the empathy that you saw around you. Shone a spotlight on that, if you will. A hundred percent. And that was healing for you? It saved my life. It really did. And it's it's interesting because when I went on the JWRP in 2014, before I started the empathy effect. I wanna I wanna stop you for a minute and I wanna point out that you went at a time where we still had what we used to call our 10% you can come if you don't fit the um, the criteria for coming, which is having children under the age of 18, because you didn't have a child yet. I didn't. And in fact, I had just lost a pregnancy at 17 weeks. So I was very, very raw on that trip. I was kind of like a big pore or like a big wound on the trip. Right. And I think that the trip came at the right time too for me. It wasn't too painful to listen to to lectures on on parenting and that sort of thing? It was painful. And sometimes pain is part of the process? I remember being at a, sh a Shabbat lunch. We, we were invited into someone's home for a Shabbat lunch, and I remember the hostess, who was so lovely and so warm, she said a few remarks at the lunch, and I... <clears throat> Pardon me. I remember crying. It's okay. Have a drink. Have a little drink. Sari Diamond on the trip. She just held me. And I remember crying and I couldn't stop crying. And no one asked me why I was crying. But I just could not stop crying. It was like this floodgate had opened. What do you think those tears were saying if they had words? Your time will come. Everyone around me had kids. I was the only person at that lunch, and it was 25 women. I was the only person without a child. And having a child as ambitious as I was with my career, I felt like that was what I was put on earth to do. To be a mother. To be a mother. And it was eluding me. And now? I'm just so in love with my kids. I mean, I'm, I, I say that and I pause because there are people listening that maybe are still, that dream still eludes them. So I pause. I'm very, very sensitive the way I talk about children and, and fertility and because there's, there's nothing as isolating as experiencing the inability to have a child. It's an incredibly lonely, lonely place. And I sat in it for so long. Sam was my fifth pregnancy. 
And I had twins before Sam that I lost at 12 weeks. And my, so Maya, my daughter, I actually never thought I'd have a second child. She's a complete miracle. I wasn't actively trying to have the child. It seems to me that before you came on that trip, and when I first met you, you were only just beginning to be introduced to the spirituality of Judaism. I know that you have sought the wisdom of many other cultures. I know that you love the poetry of Sappho and Rumi. I know that Eastern meditation and ideas that come from the East informed and influenced your aesthetic and your intellect. And then there you were in Israel and suddenly part of a community of people who went to the source of their own their own spiritual DNA. What was it like for you to suddenly to be exposed to a spirituality as deep and as rich as what you probably once thought only occurred in the East? So if I look back to my family and to my history, I grew up in a deeply Jewish home that wasn't observant. The neshamas of my parents were deeply Jewish, but we celebrated the holidays. We didn't really go to shul. Um, that was kind of a foreign thing. We'd go on the high holidays to shul. Yeah, like me. Right. But my my grandmother on my mom's side was kosher in the home, and she used to come for Passover. We just had Passover. She used to come like and put saran wrap down on the table and come with her own dishes and her own food. And we used to go to her house for Shabbat. And then my paternal grandmother – I'm wearing a necklace that you can't see, unfortunately, people who are listening, but the necklace says Woman of the Year. It's from 1959 from Beth Zion Congregation Sisterhood. That's from my dad's mom, and I actually just received that just before Passover. What was her name? Her name was Rose. Both of them were Rose, and my daughter is Maya Rose. Ah. So my daughter was named after Marty, who is Matthew's dad, that passed away a year ago to the day of her baby naming. Right. And my grandmother's rose and rose, two roses. So I want you to talk to me a little bit about how you felt in Israel. Did you have, did it have a, an impact on your soul? What was it that Jewish spirituality offered that perhaps was new or unfamiliar? It was a tremendous awakening being on that trip. I think part of it, and I think the strongest part for me, was the sisterhood of all the women from all the different countries being together. And and it was a transcendence of language because there were a lot of women that I connected with that hardly spoke any English from the former Soviet Union. Right. We, we actually formed... Uh, well, I formed a relationship with a couple of women from Greece. They, their English was good, though. There was some women from Mexico. Um, and, and I just think that this, this amalgamation of souls, women together, strangers before the trip, and just it's, it's such an intense trip that it created this incredible bond and there was such an intensity to the trip and to the experience that it created a bond, I think, that is so profound. In fact, I have relationships now with a few of the women that I met on the trip that I wouldn't have had otherwise. One of them is with a woman named Michelle Klein, 
and one of them is with a a woman named Amira Posner. I met these women on the trip, and uh, they were actually roommates on the trip. And Michelle and I are now working on a series with Michelle's husband, Adam, which is going to be a digital version of The Empathy Effect. Wow. Tell me a bit about that. So the stories of The Empathy Effect are just incredibly inspirational. And I trained to be a photojournalist after grad school. So I love photography. I love writing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you have a degree from Harvard in poetry? In Asian religion and philosophy. In Asian religion and philosophy. You're a poet and a painter and a mixed media artist, a jewelry designer and an empath, and you're as stunning as the day is long. Hello? Okay, what do, what do you mean you're a photojournalist? Why didn't I know about that? I, I actually really wanted to be a, a photojournalist. Uh, there was a time when I was really setting my sights on journalism. I was looking at broadcast journalism or photojournalism, mm-hmm. and I had the opportunity. I met a photographer in Boston when I lived there named Rick Friedman, who is a photographer for Time magazine. And he, he shoots for a lot of different publications, but he you might know some of his work because he photographed the Clintons. It's called the Laughing Clintons. Yes, I know that picture. It's a picture with the, where Hillary Clinton's head is thrown back, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So I, I did a photojournalism internship with him in Boston, uh-huh. and it was during the Cardinal Law scandal. So we were literally parked outside of a church in Boston huh. for a summer, and... I basically decided that photojournalism wasn't for me after my internship. <laughs> yeah, right. And also, I, I was really interested by Christiane Amanpour. I, I was always fascinated by watching CNN, so I thought maybe broadcast journalism. But I love photography, and I've always loved photography. And for me, photography is about capturing the beauty of people's souls. And I, I always say this to people because everyone always says, oh, I'm so unphotogenic. Like, you can't take a good picture of me. Everybody says that when you try to take a portrait of them. And I think that my my gift is capturing someone in a photograph where they think they look beautiful. So that's kind of what what I strive to do with the portraits that I take, okay, and that's what I'm I did with the empathy effect. Now, because you know that fabulous picture of me that I- yes, yes, I do. <laughs> you took that on a camera sitting in an office somewhere in an on an iPhone. Oh my gosh, yes, best best pictures with the iPhone. It's such an interesting thing. Okay, so like. That's an that's an element of empathy too to be able to to look at somebody and to seek out their beauty to be able to have the balance of the emotional empathy and the aesthetic sense of seeing them it's it's almost as though your eyes click back and forth until you find that sweet spot do you do that with personalities too do you search for that beauty well, I think whenever you're looking at someone, it's like a mirror, right? Everyone's a mirror of everyone else. And if you look at someone else in a way that says you're beautiful, they will reflect that back to you. Huh. And if you make someone really comfortable when you're taking their photograph or when you're making them a piece of jewelry, it doesn't really matter. There's no difference between any of this. Or when you're writing a poem about them, I think you can ca- capture anyone's innate beauty because everyone is beautiful, so part of my mission is, I don't even consider myself a jewelry designer. Part of my mission is just to capture people's beauty and to, to make them feel beautiful too. So when people wear the cuffs, a lot of people say it's like a badge of honor. I feel like Jewish Wonder Woman in them. Right. That's what a lot of people say because it's like they feel the beauty of the business model. It's not about the aesthetics, although of course the aesthetics are important, and of course I love beauty as much as the next person. Right. But 
it's on a soul level. Like I'm creating things on a soul level. Like the soul goes into it and is a part of the creation. And it's a part of my creation of every, everything I do, my writing, my poetry, my photography. It's always about getting in touch with the soul. It's a transcendence of the physical. Okay, back to, back to Socrates, the soul. How do you perceive the soul? The the body is like the clothing of the soul, right? Mm. And I, I don't think I said that. I, I might have taken that from Socrates or someone someone smarter than me. Um, I, I've developed a clothing line too, and I'm going to be launching that. I've been working on it for actually a couple years. Uh-huh. And I love clothing. I love beauty. I love fashion. But that's not what I'm about. Um, I, I think you can enjoy something and love something and want to explore it, but it doesn't define me. Certainly. My, ma- my mother always says, like, you know, you wear a burlap sap, you, you sack, you belt it, you'll make it look good, right? <laughs> it's like it's about, it's about your intention and it's about the energy that you project into the world. So one of the things that I do is I don't use models. Maybe that'll change as I move forward with my business. I don't know, but I don't use models with intention. Because my whole point is that every woman is beautiful. And so I try to use models for my business that are regular women because there is so much beauty everywhere you turn. And that's the empathy effect too. Everywhere you look, there's empathy. A lot of people said to me, how did you come up with that much content? And the problem was not how did I come up with that content, is how did I narrow it down? (laughs) Because it's everywhere. I would get tons of stories. I would have too many stories. And as the empathy effect gained momentum as it galvanized a following by the end of the experiment we had a hundred thousand followers it wasn't a testament to me it was a testament to the thirst for empathy to the paucity for those stories online right because there's so much negativity so this was kind of like an oasis in social media that people were drawn to like very thirsty people to water right right so there isn't a part of you a part of your makeup that you don't exercise with regularity. What I mean is your capacity for empathy, your intellectualism, your aesthetic sense, um, your activism. You must be exhausted at the end of the day. I feel really full right now, but I do get tired and I, I do sometimes struggle with, with exhaustion. Um, but, um, two small children. Yeah. But it's, I, I find that again, it's the boundaries and I'm learning that it's, it's a work in progress and by no means am I an expert yet. I'm just, I'm very much a beginner at learning the empathy, um, rather learning about boundaries. Let me, let me say that again. I'm the empathy is a gift. We talked about it as a curse. If you put in place boundaries, then I think your capacity for empathy is inexhaustible. But if you don't have those boundaries in place, it could lead you down a dark road. There's no question. There's an old story I remember hearing years ago about a group of children that are playing on the top of a mountain peak and someone throws them a ball. But they can't play with that ball because if they do, the ball's going to go off the edge of the mountain and perhaps one of them is going to fall. So they build a hundred foot fence around the peak of the mountain and then the children can play freely. This is actually something that we talk about in Jewish life as well. People so often focus on the cannots and you should nots and so on. But in many ways, boundaries create freedom. 
Even the early poets talked about that. The idea that beat poets talked about madness within margins. The idea that you can, you can frame something and set boundaries around it the way you would your marriage. You don't love your husband so much that you say, sweetheart, I am so in love with you. You can go and be with anybody you want. You know, fidelity requires boundaries as well. So, so does empathy. So give me an example of how you might want to set a boundary around your empathy. Well, as the empathy effect sort of gained a following, I, I found that people have come to me as the person who started it for advice or in times of crisis. And sometimes I can handle it, but I'm always very, very upfront with people that I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a social worker. I'm a person that has empathy. And so I have to be very careful because the more successful it becomes as a movement, the more distance I almost have to take from it. So I do everything now. Like I do all the social media. I do all the promotions for it. I write the stories. Um, I take the pictures. I did have a part of the empathy effect called the Confederacy of Dreamers where people contributed to the empathy effect. So actually someone you introduced me to who's become a very, very close friend of mine, Stephanie Bott, is a psychologist. And she was a contributor to the empathy effect. And it allowed me a bit of a reprieve during the 365-day experiment. But what I'm seeing now is that I get some messages now that are alarmingly urgent from people who are dealing with mental health crises or who are going through incredibly tumultuous times that I am not professionally trained to deal with. And although my empathy runneth over, I've had to set up boundaries in terms of how I respond. And so I think the way that I'm doing that is my dear friend Amira Posner that I mentioned before that I met on the JWRP is a trained social worker. So I just had a case recently where someone was in crisis, having a mental health crisis, and they reached out to me on Shabbat at 1 o'clock. I was actually hosting a lunch, and I didn't see the message till 8 p.m., and Right away, I was sick to my stomach because I had missed the person, and I, I started trying to call them on Facebook, and I couldn't reach them. And my heart was beating really, really fast, and I decided that the right thing to do in the moment was to call the police because it was a really urgent situation. I was able to get in touch with the police, and they were able to find the person and deal with the person. But I was so overwhelmed and so distraught but I'm not equipped. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a medical health professional. So sometimes, and, and right now I'm realizing that Amira actually offered this to me. She said, in those situations, call me and let's get on the phone as like a, a speaker or like, let, get like a conference call. And Amira is going to deal with those calls because she is trained to deal with them and I am not. So I've realized that I have to rely on other people's expertise to help me deal with the movement, that's the empathy effect, because it's not just a movement. What we what we did at, at, at Day 365 is with Michelle Klein and her husband Adam through Dream Vision, their company, we launched a video. And it was kind of saying, okay, this is wonderful. Empathy is infectious. My hypothesis was correct. People want empathy. And it's not just that they want it, though, because clicking like and clicking share is very simple. But it's a form of slacktivism. 
Slacktivism? Yeah, as opposed to activism. Slacktivism. I didn't create that term. But what does that mean, slacktivism? I love it. It's like a lazy form of activism. Oh, my God. Like an armchair quarterback. Totally. Okay, got it. Or like an armchair anthropologist, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So basically what I wanted to do with the Empathy Effect 2.0 is I wanted to say – it's great that we've proven that empathy is infectious in this laboratory that is Facebook. Now let's take it from social media into the real world. Aha, let's aha. translate the empathy effect into empathetic action in real time and space. So I created this pin, and it was called the Pledge. And basically, uh, we crowdfunded. I, I created uh, thousands of pins. And sold them through crowdfunding. My company paid for the pins, and I gave 100% of the money to the post that was shared the most over the course of the year. And the pin was a promise. And the promise was that if you're wearing the pin, you're promising to do one act of empathy every day. So a lot's written about random acts of kindness. That always rubbed me the wrong way. Because we don't believe in random acts of kindness. Jews don't. They don't. We believe in purposeful acts of kindness. Right, and that's what the empathy effect is about. It's about purposeful. It's about deliberate acts of kindness. So just circling back to one of the earlier questions you asked me about the soul and the awakening of the soul, when I started attending the lectures at the JWRP, it was like this awakening of something that was inside of me already. My soul was very Jewish. I had no idea how Jewish my soul was until I started learning about Judaism in a formal way. Because in graduate school, my studies focused on Asian philosophy and religion and and women's studies. So I was studying Hinduism and Buddhism. That's what my expertise is in. You study all religions when you do a degree in theology, but it was only when I was sitting in the classes, the lectures at the JWRP that I realized, wow, I have such a Jewish neshama (laughs) And the women around me also were having that awakening. So it was like this profound, almost like a tsunami in terms of the effect that it had on us. In terms of just like the connection that we were fostering between ourselves, but also within ourselves. Kim, you know, one of our principles in the JWRP is to take action. Tell me, tell our listeners... How do you take action with empathy? What is an actionable thing that you can do with your Jewish neshama, with your neshama, with your soul? What makes it actionable within your communities, within your families, and within the world? You know what? It's the simplest things. And I think part of the the stopgap almost for most people is they get overwhelmed. They think they have to do grand gestures, and we don't. We can do the simplest things, a smile. At a, at a person who is looking down, <laughs> um, sitting with someone at shul who's alone. It's, it's almost like a perception shift. Like part of the reason Shabbat is so powerful is because you're not supposed to have your phone. So you taught me, and it was very profound, this, this realization and this lesson, this class you taught was about the selfie. And you, you talked about how the selfie was the most popular word in the English language in 2013. And I remember writing an article about it. Every time I would attend your class, I'd write another article. So I was like, I have to go to this, this brilliant woman's classes because I would always create something after I attended one of your classes. And we live in like a selfie-obsessed culture. Shabbat, for me, is turning off the phone. And it's 
basically taking the, the, the virtual camera, if you will, and turning it introspectively. And I think when you start focusing inward, it allows you to focus outward. You can't focus outward if you don't focus inward. You need to get in touch with something deeper in yourself instead of just having the lens on yourself with the selfie. It's, um, it's this shift that needs to take place. And I think that in terms of empathy and in terms of our capacity for empathy, everyone has the capacity to be empathetic. Not everyone can be an empath. You're born an empath, in my opinion. But empathy is like a muscle. And you can learn to cultivate the muscle through practice. And I remember, I think I was in month five or so of the empathy effect. I got this message from someone who I didn't know, someone in the States, who said, I just want to tell you that the empathy effect has changed the way I am parenting my kids. And I was just blown away. And I wrote the person back and I said, can you elaborate on that? Why is that the case? And she said, because when I was driving my kids home to school, from, from school before the empathy effect, I used to say to my kids, like, what did you do that was fun today? Right. And now that I read the empathy effect, I ask them, what did you do for someone else today? Oh, Kim. And it's so small, but it's so instructive in terms of ourselves and how we teach our children. Turn the lens off yourself. I'm not against selfies, but just sometimes turn the lens off yourself and turn it on the other. And the mother told me, because we started a conversation, I can't find the thread now because it was a while ago, it was in 2015, but the mother said at first her kids didn't know what to say. Huh. They, would, they would kind of like, you know, sort of stumble right. with their answers. But then she said they were prepared and they started looking for ways to be kind and to oh. practice empathy. Oh. And so she said it's changed the way she's parented and it's changed the way her kids are as human beings because empathy is a mind shift. It's a paradigm shift in terms of your perception and your observation. So it's a muscle. We could teach our kids that selfies aren't bad. That's that's way too radical, and we're not going to teach people that selfies are bad because they're not. They're not intrinsically bad. But what we need to start teaching more is how do we take that lens and how do we turn it outward? Because the reality is that that's almost selfish because there is so much beauty if you just start looking for it. And Matthew, my husband, jokes because he says that I'm very much like Sam, who's two years old, my son, because... I'll go out for a walk and I'll, I'll say, look at that tree or look at those flowers or look at that woman, how beautiful that woman is. And you he, have hungry eyes. Kim. Hungry eyes, hungry for beauty. And it's, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. And Sam is like that too. And, and I remember when he was four months old, his first act with, of empathy, because as I said, I incubated him during the whole nine months of the empathy effect. Um, I gave birth to Sam in August, and the empathy effect wrapped up in June, right? So he was with me the whole time. And I remember I was really sick. He was four months old, and I was so desperately sick. And I was I was in bed, and he was next to me, and he had his pacifier, and he was so addicted to his pacifier. And I, I remember, you know, hacking, and I turned away from him to cough. And then I turned back to him, and he took his pacifier out of his mouth, and he tried to put it in my mouth. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And I remember gosh. thinking, oh. wow. This and he was so addicted to his pacifier, he never had it out of his mouth. And I, I remember thinking, wow, he's an empath. And my job is done here. My job is done. Because when your child, at that young an age, 
because, you know, certainly little children are not born to share. It's something we need to teach them. Wow. But I wonder, some of them, I think, I think maybe, maybe we are, and we just lose it at some point. Now he doesn't share. Like, don't get me wrong. Now, <laughs> he, it's so funny because, you know, the Israeli stack Bamba, right? right? So now pediatricians, like they tell you, you know, when children are four months, like give them a little Bamba, it'll dissolve in their mouth. So I have this hilarious video of giving Maya Bamba. I gave it to her like a few days ago, and you could hear Sam in the background, my Bamba. No, Maya. No, Maya. Give me my bum back. So it's just like so interesting what you say. But like when he was four months, he like gave me the pacifier. He tried to put it in my mouth. And now he does that as a joke with the pacifier. He tries to put it in my mouth because he thinks it's hilarious to like for an adult to have a pacifier in their mouth. But it's like now he's very territorial, right? You know, Kim, there's a, a midrash that says that when a baby is in utero, The angel comes and teaches it the entire Torah. And then when the baby is born, you tap them on the lip, yes, and that they forget it. And that you spend the rest of your life when you study Jewish philosophy, Torah, you are bringing out that which you already know. And as we get further and further and further from that in utero stage, of course, we forget more. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the word education in Greek means to draw out. And I'm so personally honored and delighted to have spent this time with you. You're just like a, you're like a nuanced tapestry of so many different threads and colors. And you let me see a little bit of the knots on the back today. Because when people look at you, because you are so physically so beautiful, I'm sure that they don't have a clue the work and the strength and the energy and the knot tying and the profound depth of who you are and your insides and your outsides totally match. Kim, thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your aesthetics, your empathy, your beauty and your kindness with all of us today. I love talking to you. I'm just happy I got to spend so much time with you because you're my girl crush. And I know that everyone listening is is jealous of me right okay, now because it. I got to spend so much time with you. Okay, you're stop everyone's it. Girl that crush. is all. Thank you so much to our Momentum sister, Kim Smiley, a woman of valor and one of my favorites. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Pashmina Podcast. When women empower one another, we ignite a force that can change the world. Unlock your power today. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Momentum Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a Momentum Podcast. For unlimited inspiration, wisdom, and empowerment, visit MomentumUnlimited.org.